I've been studying the final week of Jesus's physical life, and the Bible saves the best for last. And so today is Easter, and we really go from one extreme to the other. We go from the agony of the crucifixion to the ecstasy of the resurrection. And Friday, we camped out at the cross. And today, I want us to camp out in front of the empty tomb. So, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I am excited to share with you what God has shown me through His Word. Really, the study of 1 Corinthians 15, camping out in front of the empty tomb has changed me. It is changing me. And so I hope in some way uh, to communicate this truth to you in a way that brings change, in a way that brings joy, in a way that brings strength to your life. 1 Corinthians 15, I'll be reading the first 10 verses. This whole chapter is about one topic, and it's about resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 is the most significant teaching in the Bible that we have on resurrection. And so I hope in your personal time that you have gone or will go to the gospel accounts of the resurrection, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and read about um, that first Easter, that first Sunday morning. And it's uh, I, I went and read all of the uh, those accounts. Uh, and it's incredible to try to place yourself there um, in those in the sandals of those of those first people that encountered the risen Jesus. And. But the, the Lord drew me to this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, and I want to read the first 10 verses. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. So, 
the first thing I want us to see is the reality of the resurrection. That this is not some myth. This is not some fairy tale. This is not some fantasy. This is not some legend. The Apostle Paul says there are hundreds of eyewitnesses, people that are still alive, right? People that can verify what he's saying. And so the, the Apostle Paul is saying this is real. This is not some fairy tale that people made up, that theologians made up to make us feel better at funerals. No, this is God doing something unprecedented through his son, Jesus Christ. And the apostle Paul said, I am living proof. Like his life was radically changed. If you want the backstory to the apostle Paul, read Acts chapter nine, where his life was radically changed by an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. He went from being someone who persecuted the church. He went from someone that was trying to eliminate the church, that he thought that the followers of Jesus had stolen the body and that they'd made up this story about Jesus rising from the dead. And so he was trying to eliminate this group that followed Jesus. And Jesus Jesus radically invaded Saul of Tarsus's life to the point that he became a follower, not just a follower, he became a preacher, a church planter, a missionary, one of the great, if not the greatest Christian that has ever lived. And the Apostle Paul is saying, don't just take my word for it. There's all these other people that you can go talk to and verify what I'm saying. So the first thing I want us to see is the reality of the resurrection. Paul is talking to people that are in a church. This is the church in the city of Corinth. So he's talking to people that would claim to be Christian, but yet they needed to be reminded of the fundamentals of their faith. See, Paul was there. He started the church. He had led a lot of these people to Christ. He had downloaded the pure gospel into their lives. And so they already knew this, but he was reminding them of what they already knew. And they need to be reminded, and so do we. So do I. Reminded of what? He said, I'm here to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. Right? This is the pure, unadulterated gospel that the Apostle Paul had received directly from God. And he passed it along to them. What does the word gospel mean? So we need to be reminded of this. In a world that is inundated with bad news, we need the gospel. <laughs> the literal translation of gospel is good news. And so with the dark clouds swirling around us, we need the light of the gospel. We desperately need the hope of the gospel. The hope, the living hope that only Jesus can provide. Paul says that this is of 
first, what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. And again, this is not the Apostle Paul receiving it from some other person. This is the Apostle Paul receiving this directly from Jesus himself. And he passed it along to them and he passes it along to us. And this is of first importance. The gospel, the good news. There are these these are the non-negotiables of Christianity. You cannot claim to be a real Christian and not believe these things. This was the earliest creed of the church that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Go read Isaiah 53 and other many other passages in the Old Testament that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So these are the non-negotiables of Christianity. right? These aren't optional accessories to our faith. These are the essentials. Every Christian believes these things. Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, all all of the different groups within the Protestant camp you know, the Baptists, the Methodists, the Pentecostals, the non-denominationals. These are the essentials. And the Apostle Paul launches into this chapter on, the, so he really pulls out from that the, the resurrection. So the first part was that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. The second part is that he was buried. The third part was that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he really kind of carves that last part out and unpacks it for the remainder of the chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most most important thing that has ever happened. Do you believe that? That's what the Bible says. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. That the res- that Easter is the most e- important event in the history of humanity. The crucifixion. I want you because some of you might be thinking, but what about the cross, John? What about the cross? The crucifixion means nothing without the resurrection. Listen, without the resurrection, Jesus Christ at best would be a historical footnote. You know how many rabbis there were in the first century? You know how many preachers there were in the in the world, especially in that region? Uh, the traveling preachers, the teachers, how many... How many people that Rome put to death? Thousands. Even those that were crucified. You know, uh, crucifixion was not an uncommon sight to the people in Jesus' day. Right? So, without the resurrection, the crucifixion means nothing. It's the, it's the resurrection that authenticates the crucifixion and everything leading up to it. Easter changes everything. Right? So I don't, we camped out at the cross on Friday, but I cannot leave you there. The Bible does not leave us there. It's not a sad story of a good teacher that gets tortured and murdered. No, 
If you think that's what it is, you're completely missing the point of why Jesus came. You're, you're completely missing the, the message of the Bible, not just of the New Testament, but of the entire Bible. That Jesus was more than a good man. He was more than a martyr. He was and is the Messiah, the Son of God. The Easter changed everything. And Paul says that the resurrection is essential. That, that Easter is not an optional accessory to Christianity. Are you an Easter person? That's a bit of an odd question. But I want you to think about it with me. Are you an Easter person? I'm not asking if you observe Easter I'm not asking even if you celebrate Easter, but have you experienced Easter? Have you met the product of Easter? Have you encountered the risen Christ? Are you an Easter person? The resurrection is essential. All other doctrines in Christianity, listen, hang upon the hinge of the resurrection. It is the linchpin of our faith. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Another translation puts it this way. If Jesus, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our faith is imaginary. Another translation says, if Easter isn't true, then our faith is worthless. So you have these words that the Apostle Paul says that if Easter isn't true, then our faith is useless. Then our faith is imaginary. Then our faith is worthless. Our faith is empty. And he really wants us to get this point that Easter is essential that the goal of Easter wasn't for us to observe a holiday, wasn't uh, for us to observe something that happened 2,000 years ago, but it was for that event to have present tense impact in and through our lives. Are you an Easter person? Are you a product of Easter has your identity been shaped by the resurrection? Paul really wants us to get this. So he says again in chapter 15, verse 17, just a few verses later, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Another translation says your faith is pointless. Or a, a, a paraphrase says that your faith is a fantasy. So if you take Easter out of the equation, Christianity is a fantasy. This is the linchpin. This is the hinge. The focal point really isn't the crucifixion as significant as 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 amazing and unimaginable as the, the cross of Christ is, we would not be, we would not know of Jesus today if he was only tortured and murdered, if he was only crucified. The only reason that we're talking about Jesus 2,000 years later is because something extraordinary happened after the crucifixion. 
When you look at this ragtag bunch of followers, when you look at who was surrounding Jesus with Judas that sold him out and stabbed him in the back, he kissed him in the cheek while he kissed him on the cheek while stabbing him in the back. You have Peter, probably one of his most faithful followers that, that denies Christ multiple times, three times. You have all of his inner circle that are, that, that are betraying him in his hour of need. <laughs> you have the, the local religious system that is, they are, they are doing everything in their power to eliminate this man and his followers. So what is it? I mean, this is extraordinary, right? Something happened from Friday to Sunday. Something extraordinary took place that changed the course of history. It changed the lives of those that were most closely connected to Christ. Listen, if this was a fairy tale, if Christianity was a myth, then those closest to him would have been the first to know. They would have been the ones that would have known if they stole the body of Jesus. But if you look at how history unfolded, then they would have had to have, they would, they would have willingly suffered and died horrible deaths for the most part. They would have submitted themselves to torture and murder for something they knew to be a lie. You know, people lie to get out of trouble. People don't lie to get into trouble. And so what happened to Peter? What happened to those disciples? What happened to the inner circle? Easter happened. <laughs> the resurrection happened. And it changed everything. Easter changes everything. It changed the lives of those first followers, and it ultimately changed the world. And Easter can change your life as well. Paul really wants us to get this, though, that Christians, real Christians, are unavoidably Easter people. We should be unapologetically Easter people. We have the reality of the resurrection, and then we have the ramifications of the resurrection. And this is where it, this is where it really got good for me, uh, because the Apostle Paul is teaching things here that I haven't talked much about, that I haven't studied much about, but it is a significant part of what we believe as Christians. So we have the reality of the resurrection, that it's an unavoidable part of Christianity, and we have the ramifications of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And I want you to get this here. To lean in to God's word and ask the spirit of God to enlighten the word of God. Right? The Bible says that it's only through the Spirit of God that we can understand the Word of God, the things of God. Right, Apart from the Spirit of God, the things of God are foolishness. Right, So if you don't have the supernatural translator of the Spirit, then you will never be able to understand the Word. And so I'm, I'm hoping and praying that you lean into the Spirit as you 
absorb the word and let the spirit of God bring understanding to our lives. Because this is this is huge, right? What I'm about to teach that this is the ramifications of the resurrection. The resurrection wasn't the end of the story, right? So the resurrection wasn't a period, it was a comma. And so the Apostle Paul teaches on the reality of resurrection, right? He, he teaches on the essentials of Christianity. Then he pulls out the resurrection and he spends a significant chunk of the Bible describing it, explaining it. The implications of the resurrection, not just for Jesus observing a day where something happened to him, but what happened to him that impacts us. The Apostle Paul made a direct connect between these two things. They were two parts of the same thought. So Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't mean much to most of us here in North America in 21st century. But when he said Jesus was the first fruits, it meant a lot to the original audience. I want us to take a closer look at what it meant for Jesus to be the first fruits. When he's describing the resurrection, he says that Jesus is the first fruits. Now, I taught in a previous message about the Passover. It's, 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 it's incredible. Right, the the unfolding plan of God. You know, the Jesus Storybook Bible says every story in the Bible whispers his name. And you have this unfolding plan of God. That that Jesus is there, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that creation happened through Christ. So Christ was there at the very beginning. So he's helping to build the stage that he will ultimately walk out on in physical form. So Jesus is, is helping create these events that are setting the stage for his arrival, for his sacrifice. Passover, right? You can go to the, the previous message from last Wednesday. It was actually the first day of Passover that I had a chance to dig down and really unpack uh, what this ancient festival means for us as, as Christians today. And so Passover is directly connected to the feast of the first fruits. One author put it, put it this way. Jesus gave his life as our Passover lamb on the 14th day of the Hebrew month, Nisan. We believe that he rose from the dead on the 16th day of Nisan, the feast of the first fruits. Since Jewish reckoning views part of the day as a full day, the 14th through the 16th was considered three days. So I want us to get this because this was foreign to me for a lot of my life and even a lot of my Christian faith. And I know it's foreign to many of you as well, but I want to try to connect the dots so that we can help, we can more fully appreciate and understand what God has done for our redemption for our redemption a person was supposed so at the feast of the first fruit this was prescribed by god in the old testament basically christ was there prescribing this knowing how it was going to unfold with his resurrection so in the old testament 
God prescribed this feast of the first fruits or this feast of harvest, feast of weeks. It's called multiple things, but it's the feast of the first fruits where someone would, this was the early harvest and it was barley. So the person that owned the field would take the first portion of their harvest and bring it to the priest and the priest would take the stalk. They'd take the sheaf of barley and they'd wave it in the presence of the Lord back and forth. And that one stalk of barley was representative of the whole harvest. And when the Apostle Paul, when the New Testament describes Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits, that means that there's a comma after Easter. That means that his resurrection would be the first of many. Have you thought about this? That what the, what the spiritual implications are in my life of Easter, what, what the ramifications of the resurrection are, not just thinking back of what happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago, but how that, the most important thing that has ever happened in the history of humanity, how that has a huge impact on me today. Jesus as the first fruits, the sheaf representing, the, the stalk representing the entire harvest. Uh, there is a comma after Easter, and so I want us to realize here, like this, as I as I studied this, especially today, just camped out in front of the empty tomb, and and I I, I really was soaking in this passage of scripture, and light bulbs were going off as the Spirit of God was was illuminating the Word of God. And I want you to see this here because Paul is teaching a church. And what church is he teaching? This is a church in Corinth. And these are new Christians. And so what I want us to see is this isn't graduate level Christianity. Right? This isn't a master's course. This isn't a doctoral course in Christianity. These are new Christians with lots of problems. Just read the previous 14 chapters of 1 Corinthians and you'll see that these are these are people that, that are a part of a church that are getting intoxicated at the Lord's Supper. These are people that are suing each other and fighting amongst themselves. And there's there's divisions in the church over, I follow this preacher. No, I follow this preacher. So there's, there's immorality. There's confusion. There's division. They're taking each other to court. And it, there's even incest. Right? You look at chapter 5 and Paul rebukes them for allowing these, um, these relationships to happen in the church. So all of that to say that Paul isn't teaching graduate level Christianity in 1 Corinthians 15. In his mind, this is remedial theology. And the fact that, that we don't present this, the fact that we don't teach this, is an indictment against me as a preacher, and it's an indictment against our system that we that we try to water down 
the Bible so much that we leave out entire chunks that are a critical part of our faith, as we'll see in a moment, how this doctrine has huge impact on my circumstance today, my joy today. Paul is teaching these new Christians Right. This is, in his mind, Christianity 101. And yet, for me, I really haven't heard a lot of teaching on this. And honestly, I haven't done a lot of study on this. And so, I hope that this opens up a whole new... For some of you, you already know this, and, you've, and God has already brought you there. But for others, this is going to open up a whole new area for you. Right? And, and, and the hope is that this truth will lead to more joy. We'll get to that in a moment. If we go to the end of the chapter in verses 54 to 58, beautiful. This is one of the hallelujah parts of the Bible. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, some of us want to claim this as a present tense promise, but the Apostle Paul, you have to look at all scripture in context. In context, When you see what he's teaching, you can't pull that out and claim it. This is something, this is a future reality that he's describing, but it has present tense impact. That's the point. That's why he's downloading it. That's why he's downloading it into the lives of these new Christians in Corinth. So he says these amazing things about death being swallowed up in victory. And thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through Christ Jesus, our, our Lord. I heard an old, old story how a Savior came from glory, right? Victory in Jesus. But what is he describing here? He's describing something that hasn't happened yet. But this future reality has present tense impact. Look at verse 58. Therefore, so he says, in light of what I just taught about this, the resurrection, how the resurrection of Jesus will lead to other resurrections, will lead to our resurrection. Therefore, because of these truths, because of someday when the perishable shall be clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, right? That's not happening now. That's going to happen when Christ returns. And we'll get to that in a moment. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Right? When, when there's a worldwide pandemic, when there is a global crisis, and when there are things happening around our lives that we cannot control, and yet they have direct impact on us, right? Therefore, stand firm. 
Let nothing move you. Always, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is never in vain. So Paul is describing, he's he's describing a future reality that has a direct impact on our faith. So again, the Apostle Paul is making a direct connect between the resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection and how our resurrection has a direct impact on how we live out our faith, how we experience our faith, how we process the circumstances that happened around us. The resurrection of Jesus made salvation possible and a part of our salvation involves resurrection. So what the Bible, what Jesus did on the cross and what was authenticated by the resurrection makes salvation available to everyone, but our, but our, our salvation happens in stages. That's what the Apostle Paul is teaching here and in other parts of the New Testament is that, yes, we are saved by faith now, but we will only fully experience the potential of that salvation when Christ returns and when we ourselves experience Easter, when we experience resurrection because of Easter The resurrection of Jesus made salvation possible, and it will lead to Easter 2.0, right? When Christ returns, and we will, Christians, Easter people will experience resurrection for themselves. And this is a truth that should have direct impact on our faith now. This future reality that has present tense influence. Easter people should be captivated by this future reality, by this truth of scripture that we cling to now in the present tense. That is a source of strength that fuels our perseverance through the pain, through the sorrow, through the heartache. Easter people should be captivated by this future reality. However, I find myself being so consumed by the circumstance that I seldom think of the future reality, the future theological reality that should have, that should shape my attitude about the circumstance that I'm in. I don't know about you, but I find myself focusing on what's in front of me and allowing my circumstance to shape my attitude, to allowing my circumstance to determine my joy. And what the Bible teaches, what the Apostle Paul is teaching is that Easter opened up a whole new world, right? That our lives here aren't the end of the story. That there is so much more. You know, some of us, we have this FOMO. We have this fear of missing out. And and we want, there, there's this frantic pace because we want to get it all in. We want to check all the boxes. We want to do everything on the bucket list. And so we have this frantic pace of life where we're trying to keep up. And the Bible is teaching us to step out of that reality and to focus 
on what is ultimately true. The eternal reality that should bring this serenity to our lives today. This future reality that should invade our present circumstance. In Hebrews chapter 12, this is an amazing passage of scripture that follows up on Hebrews chapter 11, which really is um, a hall of fame for the Bible. It's called the hall of faith uh, because uh, there's it mentions a lot of people that God used in significant ways. And then it says in Hebrews chapter 12, therefore, so it's directly connected, right, to what previously happened in Hebrews chapter 11. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all of these people, all of these inconsistent, sinful people that God used, therefore, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Listen, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, sitting down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us consider him who endured such treatment from sinful men so that we will not grow weary and we will not lose heart. So what is the, what is the Bible telling us? is to fix our eyes on Jesus. See, some people, all of us struggle with sin. All of us struggle with temptation. And so when we fate, when we place our focus on the struggle, in many ways it backfires and it intensifies the temptation. Right? If I'm hungry and I'm staring at a piece of cake, Right? Don't eat the cake. Don't eat the cake. Don't eat the cake. Right? All that's going to happen is I'm just going to get hungrier and closer and closer till eventually I'm going to take a bite of the cake. And a lot of us have that same approach when it comes to temptation and sin. You know, don't do it. Don't do it. Right? And we get closer and closer until we eventually, until we eventually cross the line. And, and so the solution biblically is not to focus on the circumstance, to not to focus on the struggle, to not to focus on the sin, but fix our eyes on Jesus, right? That's how we're able to transcend the struggle. That's how we're able to rise above the temptation. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross. So it says not to fix our eyes on the historical Jesus. We're not looking back in history at somebody that lived 2,000 years ago. Because of Easter, Jesus is alive. And so we're focusing our gaze on where Jesus is now. And where is Jesus now? He's not camped out in Jerusalem. Jesus is glorified. He ascended into heaven and he is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider him so that we can run this race with perseverance. So they're not so that we're not entangled and tripped up and we're not in bondage to sin. 
Jesus knew that the cross wasn't the end. It says, for the joy set before him endured the cross. So Christ knew that glory was on the other side of suffering. And the same is true for us. To, to look above the storm, to look through the storm, to look beyond our circumstance and to see Jesus. Yes, the Jesus that lives in us through the Holy Spirit, the presence of Christ through the Spirit. But at the same time, you're seeing you're seeing the reality of what we are currently connected to. Not someday, but right now, we are spiritually aligned with Christ in the heavenlies. Part of the joy comes out of understanding what Easter ultimately accomplished. Paul uses the example of a seed in 1 Corinthians 15. And so think about a tulip bulb. He uses multiple examples, and this is one of them, to try to, he's trying to help us get our minds around this concept of there's a comma, there's a comma after Easter. That there's so much more than meets the eye. There's so much more to the story than what we're currently experiencing. And so he uses the example of a seed. I want you to think for a moment about a tulip bulb. Like every bulb has the potential within it for life. Every, every bulb has the spark of life within it, but it's only when that bulb is planted in the dirt that it realizes its full potential. So you look at the bulb and you look at the tulip and the Apostle Paul is saying that is kind of what it's going to be like. Our current, our current experience, yes, we have the Spirit of God within us. Yes, the, we are part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, right? And it's this invisible kingdom that Jesus initiated when he came to the earth. But that's not the end. So you look at what we're experiencing now as the bulb. Then you look at the tulip of what's going to be. That's the full expression of our salvation. God's salvation is holistic. It's not just spiritual. Well, we're not, we're not dividing our life up into the spiritual and the physical. Salvation covers every part of us our souls, and our bodies. So our souls can be redeemed now by grace through faith in Christ. And then that's the bulb with the, with the spark of life within it. But then someday when Christ returns, that bulb, so if that bulb of the body might get planted in the dirt of the earth temporarily. Now, this is interesting. There will be a generation that will never die. That will be the generation that is alive when Christ returns. And there is a growing part of me that desires to be a part of that generation. That we will see with our own eyes the cloud part back. We will hear the trumpet as Christ returns and the dead in Christ are raised. So we'll get to see 
these these uh, these saints that have fallen asleep. I love how the Bible describes death. The Bible describes death as a nap. <laughs> these Christians haven't died. They've simply taken a nap. So it's the tulip bulb getting planted in the dirt that will eventually blossom into something more beautiful than you could ever anticipate. If you'd never seen a tulip, you would never imagine that something like that could come from something like this. And the same thing is true from us spiritually. Right? So, but those who are alive at the return of Christ will never experience the first death. Right? The Bible calls judgment and hell the second death. Right? So, but there'll be a group that are alive. And, and I really hope to be a part of that generation that gets to see the Christ return and gets to see the Christians that have fallen asleep, that are woken up by the trumpet. So listen, when we die, our souls immediately are, are immediately translate into the presence of God. Right, absent from the body means to be present with the Lord. So I want you to get this right. Right, it's not that our souls have gone into hibernation when we die physically, but when we die physically, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, "I tell you the truth: on this day, you will be with me in paradise." Right. So when we die as believers, our souls immediately are immediately translate transfer we are immediate we, we close our eyes in death and we open them in the presence of Jesus and I believe the same thing is true for non-believers as well like when, so when you go back like I said the other day those two sides of the cross right and the question was which side of the cross are you on there's one side Right? They're all guilty except Jesus. There's one side, this criminal that is hurling insults at Jesus, that is, that is bitter and angry and selfish to the very end, right? That is rejecting Christ. But then the other side of the cross, right? There's this criminal who recognizes his own guilt and he recognizes who he, he is as a sinner as somebody who's guilty and deserves punishment. But then, this is the saving piece, he turns towards Jesus and he recognizes who Jesus is. He recognizes the innocence of Jesus. So which side of the cross are you on? So that one criminal died and his soul immediately went to hell in eternal judgment, in torment. The other criminal died and immediately was in the presence of Jesus, was in the presence of God. And so when we die, if we die before the Lord, the Lord returns, our bodies like the tulip bulb will be planted in the dirt, but our spirits will be in the presence of Jesus. But then someday, and in the, in the New Testament is full of this teaching, the gospel, Jesus is, Jesus is teaching on his return, right? This is not some... This is not some vague teaching in the Bible, right? And so when, when Christ returns, our souls that are already in his presence will be connected with our resurrected glorified bodies. 
Our current ability, I want you to get this here. This really hit me today. Our current ability to experience pleasure is just a foretaste of what is going to be. This is beautiful. So our current ability to experience happiness and joy and pleasure is just an appetizer. It's just a crumb compared to what we will experience when Christ returns, when we are given new and glorified bodies. Then Christ will set up his kingdom, this invisible subversive kingdom that was initiated when Jesus was here physically will be consummated when he comes back. The first time he came as in an unlikely way, he came in secret. It was foretold in the Old Testament, but not very many people, very few people knew that he had arrived in the form of a baby, right, in in a dot on the map in Bethlehem, right? So the first time he came in secret and he initiated this invisible kingdom that has this subversive influence, But the second time he comes, every eye will see him and every knee will bow. The next time he will come in authority as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that's when, if if we have already died, our souls that have been with him will be reconnected with our resurrected glorified bodies and we will reign with Christ in a new heaven on a new earth in our new bodies with a supernatural capacity to experience divine pleasure man so our current pleasures pale in comparison to the fullness of joy that will be revealed when Jesus returns. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Easter people not only reflect upon the the resurrection of Jesus, but we anticipate our own. This truth allows us to transcend the struggle and to persevere through the pain so that we will not grow weary and we will not lose heart. You know, some people in the midst of this pandemic, and I understand it, they're asking these big questions. They're asking, why doesn't God do something? And this is a pandemic on a global scale. But all of us have asked that question on a personal level. There are a lot of people asking it now uh, in the midst of the pandemic and the crisis that we're all experiencing together. But so many of us have asked that question in the middle of unimaginable heartache and loss. When, When we are crushed by loss and hurt and pain. We ask the question, why doesn't God do something? And Easter is God's answer. God has done something. 
God has sent his son from heaven into the valley of the shadow of humanity, into the darkness, into the brokenness. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Why doesn't God do something? God has done something. Easter is his answer. And the question I have for myself and the quest question I have for you, is Easter enough? Is what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ? So we traveled through Friday in the agony of the crucifixion as Jesus absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. When you think of the gravity and the magnitude of what took place, and then God raised him from the dead as a way of authenticating his sacrifice, that the sacrifice had been acceptable to God. And through that has made eternal life available to every person by grace through faith in Christ. And then when you look at what God has done, and you look at what God will do. The same God that was faithful to his word in fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament, the same God that sent Jesus will send him again, will be faithful to his word in fulfillment of the prophecies of the New Testament. And you think of you think of what we are going to get to experience because we are connected to Christ. When you think of experiencing the resurrection for ourselves as Easter people, that's the question I have for myself. Is Easter enough for me? Resurrection. Listen. Resurrection is the ultimate solution for every struggle. But it must be received. So we have the reality of the resurrection, we have the ramifications of the resurrection, and then we have to, we have to receive the resurrection. On that first Easter, as you go back and read the account in the Gospels, Mary encountered the risen Christ. And it's interesting. She did not recognize him. Again, we get a glimpse of what we will be by seeing the resurrected Christ. He was the firstborn among many. He was the first fruits. So we're going to have a body like his someday. And so... Our souls will be the same, which creates our uniqueness, our identity. But our image will be different. Mary 
didn't recognize Jesus at first. I find that interesting. She didn't recognize him until he spoke her name. The resurrected Christ spoke her name and she immediately said, Rabbi. And her testimony was, I have seen the Lord. And that is the testimony of every kingdom person. I believe that that same Jesus still speaks our names. Are you listening? Can I pray for you? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for Easter and all that it means that you defeated death, hell, and the grave. That we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. That we have ultimate victory because of Easter. And I pray that your word that gives us these promises of this future reality, that that will be a pipeline of strength that fuels our perseverance through the struggle. That this truth of scripture about what will happen and who we will be will allow us to transcend the struggle and to persevere through the pain. And I pray for those, Lord, that maybe have learned about a historical Jesus, but have never heard you speak their name. And it's when you speak our name, that's what unlocks the door in our hearts as you call us to yourself. I pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear as you whisper our names in the midst of the pandemic, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the confusion, in the midst of the uncertainty. Help us to hear you. Help us to see you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Peace be with you. If you're looking for ways to connect, find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just check out the show notes for details. Thank you for tuning in. I hope and pray that this has been a blessing in your life. And I hope that you'll continue the conversation with God by opening his word for yourself. Love y'all.